Welcome to Protect Your Practice, brought to you by BrightSquid. Let's dig deep into real-world data breaches of patient information. We'll provide practical, expert advice to help you mitigate risk, understand compliance with privacy laws, and safeguard your clinic against all of the privacy and security threats facing healthcare today. Welcome back to Protect Your Practice. This is episode five. This week we'll be talking about the different regulations around understanding what your right to access certain information is. And we're also going to look at different ways to communicate patient information, which ones might cause trouble, uh, which ones might be better. With us this week, we have Roy Joshi, Brightsquid CEO, who's a recognized privacy officer, <laughs> privacy expert, uh, um, speaking at international conferences. And we just got back from one last week. Um, talking about innovation and how privacy affects that. Um, we've got Ingrid Rice, who is a privacy compliance expert who has been with lots of different organizations, but has been doing privacy impact assessments for clinics for uh, over 30 years. Uh, Catherine Kolacek, who is a, uh, a PR expert, um, especially when it comes to dealing with crisis communications uh, on a national and international basis. So let's dig in. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today, everybody. The first issue, the first breach we're going to talk about, and this was a big one. It was in the news because it, it was it's a tragic story that everybody in Canada and a lot of people in the U.S. especially were paying attention to. Tragic incident where a hockey team's bus um, was involved in an accident and, and a, a large number of the players died. And following that, a number of primary care physicians accessed some of the players' information because they had been involved in their care. And then it was determined that that there was some inappropriate access there. So I want to talk about that. What was inappropriate? What was the stance of the, these physicians? What should they have done and how should it have worked? Ingrid, I want to start with you because you can offer some clarity around um, people are using the term snooping. And I know you're not totally hot on using that term in this case. Well, it, it was in essence snooping. It was just the way it was done. So the, the physicians that did actually view the records did have the initial contact with these uh, patients at the time, and they were the primary caregivers from an eMERGE section or from the initial intake. However, once those patients were transferred, to a bigger hospital or to another center, they were no longer the physician on record. And so, in essence, they had no right to access post um, when they left their care. And I think that's that's where the issue came in, obviously, that they continued to follow these patients when they were no longer patients. So, albeit it was technically snooping, it was just uh, their intent at the time was definitely, um, you know, concern and care. So, Rod, you had something to say about that. Yeah, you know, I think that when we look at this scenario, um, we have a lot of empathy for a small community that's seen such a tragedy. And there's an empathy here for the physicians who want to continue to be in touch because, you know, I grew up in a small community as well. And the physicians really are seen as, as, as important members of the community who are able to help relieve some... Uh, um, I guess, angst or concern or, or whatever. You know, a lot of the cases that we talk about, we talk about, you know, nefarious access or curiosity, inappropriate curiosity. I don't feel that here. The important thing, though, for us all to recognize is it's still against the law. So even though we can, we can maybe pass off why this occurred, they did things that they should not have, and they should have been trained better in that process. So the, the intent was good, or the intent... 
is understandable. Yeah. Let's leave it that way. Sure. Yeah. Right? The intent is understandable, but I, it doesn't relieve the fact that it's still against the law. Yeah. Now, Catherine, from your perspective, I mean, these doctors are now dealing with their name in the news, uh, used sort of negatively. What's, what's the implication here for them? Well, I think what we think about when we um, get a case like this is that most people that are facing a crisis situation in the media don't plan for it. They're not expecting it. They think they're low risk. And I think that probably was this case here. They, these individuals would, these clinicians would have thought that they were low risk for having something on such a large scale, having their name and the reputational damage that goes along with what has happened here on such a large scale. But this is really how crises emerge. So, um, in this case, obviously no one was expecting a tragedy on this scale, but, um, when we have something like this happen in the media, the media is looking for daily updates and really there's not a lot to talk about every day, multiple times a day. They need something to talk about because everybody's thinking about it and rightfully so. Um, so when we have something like this happen, the story expands and when the media needs something to talk about and they're looking for different angles, then reputational damage becomes more, um, it becomes larger. And from my perspective, it's really hard to, like we do a lot of reputation management. It's really hard to bring it back. It's really expensive. It takes years. It's not something that um, you should take lightly. And it's not something that the average individual clinician should think that they're not at risk for. So then, so what do you do? How do you prepare for that? Well, first, I think from my perspective, they should have had, and I think they did have training to not take the actions that they did, even if their intentions were good. Um, it doesn't matter because what's happening now, if I Google any of their names, their names are connected to that word snooping. Okay. So they look unprofessional. They look um, like a clinician I wouldn't want to go to. I wouldn't want to take my kids to those people. Um, and regardless of what actually happened, that's what is connected to their name now. So from my perspective, when we're talking to clinicians about risk management, when it comes to reputational damage, it's training everybody really well as to what a crisis could look like for an everyday average Canadian or North American. And in, in this case, a clinician. Yeah. And I know like we do, when we do training on a regular basis with our privacy services clients, that's almost point number one. And Ingrid, you've been doing this. I mean, how does that come across? Right. Well, in a lot of times, like in this case, it, it, they felt it was their right to know, but it wasn't their right to know. Um, they wanted to know versus their right to know. And when we're training, we try to reiterate very uh, frequently and often, you have to understand why you're collecting, using and disclosing information. And you have no right to continue to collect this information when you're no longer the primary caregiver. Yeah, right. And so, Rowan, as a lawyer, what do you what do you see as the legal implications for these guys? Yeah. So, being informed um, again, as I've sort of mentioned, you know, I think that they're it's understandable. But being informed as to the boundaries of what you need to do really does come down to training, because they've increased not only the reputational damage, as Catherine's been mentioning. But also there's legal liability that, that has occurred because they did not follow the rules and the laws that existed. Um, it remains to be seen how much, uh, um, you know, what's going to occur in this scenario um, uh, because I, it has not been resolved yet. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, there, there would have been a lot, 
a lot better opportunity for these uh, physicians to stay out of the news if they just would have respected some of the laws that they should have been better trained in. Right. Yeah. And I, so I, and I should mention, this was the Humboldt Broncos. So this is a story that will be in the news for yeah. for decades, yeah, really forever. Really. And, yeah. and people are always checking in on stuff. And you Massive tragedy, right? Well, and it's the one you don't want to have your name attached to in any kind of negative way. Right. Right. So right. And that's, I think that's probably, you know, Scott, from your point, the huge risk. And the cleanup on that reputationally, I think, is going to be, is going to take years for these individuals. So absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. Any other comments on this before we move on to the next? No, just a sad scenario where, yeah. you know, I think um, going back to the basics uh, would have helped everybody. Mm-hmm. Understanding the basics, trying to make yeah. sure that everybody's managing it in spite of the important, you know, yeah. uh, in spite of the, 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 the terrible nature of this tragedy. So the, the next one really kind of talks about, we're calling it doctor no loss in the mail, right? So, but it's, it's, and this happens all the time when we deal with clinics who send hundreds of letters a month or a week sometimes. Um, and I, I, for one, um, you know, even thanks Canada Post for being great most of the time, but every time I mail something, I'm amazed when it gets there just because, uh, and how fast it gets there, but sometimes it doesn't. And, and in this case, what happens if there's, if there's an envelope containing patient information, uh, Ingrid, what implications are there if that doesn't arrive at the other end? Well, we've seen multiple scenarios of this where um, you get a referral or they're mailing out a referral and it doesn't get there. And then so if you have a fairly serious or, or something and there's no follow-up, you assume on one end that it's, got, it's been received by the referring physician and then they're dealing with the matter, but that's not always the case. So uh, to me, uh, mail is just not an effective means of communications anymore. And it's also timely, costly, and the much better scenario obviously would be to securely send it in the quickest means possible. And I definitely feel that um, posting it has gone by way of the dodo. Yeah. I've got, I've got a couple of thoughts around this. The first is really, you know, from a, HIA perspective, from the Health Information Act perspective, looking at the loss of this critical data and the potential risk of harm, particularly if it's a more regular occurrence than not. And in this case, it was Canada Post, but it could have just as easily been a courier. There's a real challenge because, you know, I think there's a, there, there's a, an opportunity to do a great deal of harm with, uh, with not rigorous practices. The other piece of this, and this isn't a privacy concern, but it's certainly a concern for the healthcare provider, is the fact that you need to know that that has arrived and that it's been, you know, read. Because, because I think there's an obligation here for healthcare providers that the continuity of care doesn't change until that baton has been handed to the next player in that relay. And, and, and I'm, you know, uh, I know it's not a privacy issue, but, but I almost want to do a whole podcast around you know, what do you do with lost information? We've seen deaths in this province and in Alberta and across the country. It's not unique. We've seen deaths where there has been a ball dropped and plural deaths, um, well-documented cases. And there just has to be a better way. And what we, what we think a lot about is how do you close that communication loop? How does the person sending ensure that that data has been received or that information has been received? And until then, that person is still on the hook. And I think yeah. that's really a, a difference in expectation that we have to have. Well, and the risk is we, we were talking about this before as we were getting ready is uh, uh, clinics move. 
Yeah, patience, yeah. patience move. You know, I still get mail. Facts numbers change. Right? Facts numbers <laughs> change, right? And you know, um, at the conference we were at, Andre Picard was talking at, at the final sort of keynote, and he said uh, the equivalent of fifty airliners going down a year is is what the numbers are around the number of deaths uh, because of communication errors in Canada. Yeah. We wouldn't accept that. The airline industry would shut down. And it has for less. Um, so it's a huge issue from safety. Absolutely. But now, Catherine, what happens if if the doctor mails my patient record to my neighbor and my neighbor gets it and reads it and says, hey, I've read all of these things about you, Jeff. I think, again, we're talking reputation. I think when it comes to the case where a large amount of mail continues to go to a place over and over again, we always ask the question, well, what does it look like on the evening news? And this is what that story would look like. And um, for that clinic, again, like if someone has taken make, made the effort to put that clinic together, it's usually taken years to build its own reputation for, um, you know, quality of care. And then to make a mistake like this, and to have all of that reputation damaged, it, it's not something that's easily recovered. So if you're, if you are continuing to make a mistake over and over along those lines, you have to think about, um, the public embarrassment of what that could cause, um, and what it would look like at, yeah. at six o'clock in front of everybody. Yeah. So Ingrid, what do we do instead? Like, how do you prevent these troubles from getting in the evening news? Well, I mean, obviously, the securest method possible and quickest is the best solution, and ensuring that uh, referral request has gone, whether it's a follow-up phone call, and keep the patient involved. Keep that information so that they're aware of where it's gone, what steps are being taken. I mean, in the end result is it's about care and providing the care for the patient. Uh, so, yeah, from my perspective, you know, clearly I've got a bias. Uh, we've got a product called Secure Mail, which does have, you know, closes loop. Um, uh, but there are other secure products out there. I think the only thing that we want to ensure is that it's not just about sending, but it's about confirmation of receipt. Well, and to me, I think we, we deal with clinics who say, you know, I used to mail stuff. And even if it's, even if it's across town, it takes a couple of days. Yeah. If it's out of town... It could take a week or more. And now, you know, in Alberta, the CPSA guidelines say you have to acknowledge within 13 days of receiving a referral request. So now you're adding another two weeks onto that. So if the letter doesn't get there, you're waiting for three weeks before you're even following up to see if they've gotten it. And by that time, the delay is just uh, escalating. Yeah. So, so the important things here today, I think that wraps us up for this episode. Um, know your rights, know what information you can access and when, uh, and, and really take a look at your clinic to make sure that you're communicating information in an efficient and effective way that is going to respect the privacy of your patients and protect your practice from being in the evening news. Thanks for listening to Protect Your Practice, brought to you by BrightSquid. For a regular dose of privacy insights and tips, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd be honored if you left us a five-star review and shared this episode with your colleagues. Find out how you can get expert privacy compliance support at brightsquid.com and click Privacy Compliance.